0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, The Ten Commandments, today with a message called murder. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: We've been doing a study of the Ten Commandments, God's international law, his His universal law. Today, we'll be studying the sixth command, which is very simple. It's only four words. You shall not murder. Now, what's interesting about this command is how widely misunderstood this command has become. You know, a wider part of the culture believes that this command says, thou shalt not kill. At least that's how the command was translated in the old King James Bible, but that's actually a mistranslation and a mistranslation so widely perpetuated that this command has been used in ways in which it was never intended. You know, the Hebrew word is the word ratsach, and it refers to what we would call homicide or murder, rather than the generalized word for killing. And so this verse can not be used to prohibit the killing of animals or a verse against capital punishment or even a verse against going to war. So if you want to hear what the Bible says about those themes, you have to go to other places. This command very specifically relates to murder. and This is interesting because, as you might know, of the Ten Commandments, only the sixth and the eighth are commands that you will find in most countries' criminal code. That is, the command not to murder and the command not to steal are considered criminal matters. The other eight are not law codes in most nations. And so we might think that on this matter, the matter of murder, we would have broad agreement. And in one sense, that's true. The prohibition against murder is found in every single nation on the earth. However, the rates of murder vary greatly among the countries of the earth. If you want a relatively safe place on earth to live, you might want to try a country like Austria or Singapore or Japan. And if you happen to live in a place like Venezuela, your chances of being murdered are about 100 times higher than if you lived in Austria. See, some nations are far more lawless than others. The value of human life varies greatly among the nations. And just by the way, the murder rate in Israel, well, it's actually lower than that of Canada. I recently read an article on the murder rate in Mexico. It was recorded in The Economist. It talked about three missing students who had been found to have been dissolved in acid the Morgan Tijuana was so full of bodies of the murdered last year that people in that city complained of the smell. This year, Mexico will see some 30,000 people murdered. It's appalling. So where does all this come from? No doubt because of the varying rates of murder among different nations, rates that vary widely. Clearly, there are cultural factors, factors that deal with poverty and matters of law enforcement, the acceptability of deadly weapons in a culture, that's one factor, nations with long disputes with others, that's a factor, and the list is long. But let's talk about this grisly matter, the matter of murder from the scriptures. If the sixth command forbids murder, how is the concept of murder developed first in the law and then second in the New Testament? Let's start with a very first mention of murder, and that's found in Genesis 4, which, as you may remember, is a very clear-cut case. Out of jealousy, Cain murders his brother. Genesis 4.10 records God is speaking to him. It says, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, from that, we are to understand that God is never indifferent to any act of murder. A murder may be done in secret, but the matter immediately comes before the throne of God. And even though the world now suffers multiple murders every second, nothing has changed. God's attention is not distracted because of the immensity of murders. Every single murdered person's blood cries out to God for justice, and in the end, God will avenge their blood. No murderer will get away with his act. The next place murder is dealt with is in the aftermath of the universal flood. The world before the flood was a violent world indeed, great warlords who thought nothing of killing their enemies. But after the flood, things were about to change. Genesis 9, 5 to 6 says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image." That is to say, God views the murder of human beings as different from the taking of all other life. Human beings alone are made uniquely in the image of God, and therefore, in order to emphasize the gravity of taking of human life, God mandates the death penalty for the taking of human life. Now, to this command, there are a number of responses. Uh, the one side of the debate argues that the Bible demands that the death penalty be the law of nations. And that side will normally point out that this law found in Genesis 9 is a law that was given before God chose the Jewish people and made them his own. And so we can't argue that capital punishment was only given to the nation of Israel. This, they argue, is a case for a universal law. And by the way, that's a fairly strong case. But there are others who are going to argue that the law of love in Christ and the redemption that's offered no longer makes this a necessity. Uh, Regardless of how you come out, I simply take this under advisement and we simply take note of it. But let's move on, all the way to Leviticus 24, verses 21 to 22. There we have the law applied to Israel. It says, whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Now, in this context, the killing of an animal is not killing an animal for food. It's, it's killing your neighbor's animal as ox or his sheep. So if you do that, says the law, you're going to be liable for the cost of that animal. But if you take a human life, you can't assess a cost. You forfeit your own life in such a case. But as we know, the matter is complicated. When people murder people, it's not always easy to ascertain who the murderer is. Sometimes, as is true all over the world, the wrong person is apprehended and convicted. And because of the corruption that can exist in, you know, in police forces, it's also possible for a horrible complicity to develop. And this doesn't surprise Christians. We know that the world is desperately fallen, and evil compounds into ever greater degrees of evil. If we allow for the death penalty, we might expect then that a great many innocent people will be put to death. And so the law of God over Israel mediates this. So I'm reading Numbers 33, verse 30. It says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. You know, in short, the Old Testament law did not allow a person to receive the death penalty on the basis of circumstantial evidence. The murder must have been witnessed by at least two witnesses. And I need to interject here that, that in our modern world, in those states that have the death penalty, well, that's often not the case. See, a great many people on death row are given the death penalty on the basis of what we call circumstantial evidence. And that consists of things like motive and opportunity and means to commit the crime. So don't you see this kind of the application of a death penalty would never have been permitted in the Old Testament. You know, in our day, two prominent US lawyers, one Peter newfelt and by the way, that's no relation to me, and another Barry Sheck, formed an organization called the Innocence Project. In consequence of their work, especially making use of DNA evidence, Neufeld and Sheck have found numerous people on death row who could not have committed the crime. At present, they've managed to procure over 360 such exonerations, and because of that, have managed to find over 150 people who were actually guilty of the crime. Now, I might argue that that DNA evidence would amount to the same as the two witnesses that the Old Testament requires, and, and that may well be. But one thing remains clear. The Old Testament required a higher degree of certainty in a capital crime than it did in all other crimes. It did this because the taking of an innocent life, even the risk of taking it, was considered abhorrent. But what if two witnesses conspire against an innocent man? What then? Well, Deuteronomy 19 speaks of that issue. Verse 16 begins with the sentence, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then it gives the rules of evidence and the rules of ascertaining whether a witness was to be believed. But what if it was found that the witness had lied deliberately? What do you do then? Well, verse 19 says, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. That is, if you give false testimony in a murder trial, you will be subject to the death penalty. Now, from that, we see how seriously the Old Testament law treats the matter of human life. Human life is in the image of God.
0: Every day we hear from listeners from right across the country. Sean recently wrote, I often listen to Dr. John's Bible teaching while driving to work. It's given me great insights into God's message to his people. Back to the Bible Canada is indeed an inspiration. Well, we're so grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your partnership in making Bible teaching you can trust available to as many people in as many places, in as many ways as possible. One way we want to do that this month is by sending you our free combo CD series called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five Laugh Again episodes to encourage you and to remind you of where confident joy is really found. So just call us today for your free copy of Joy in Tough Times by calling 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.
1: Bible forbids the taking of human life, we do well to ask where the impulse comes from. I mean, what, what inspires murder? And Jesus spoke of that, and it's recorded in John 8:44. 44. You know, the context is a part of a debate he was having with the religious teachers, and in the debate, Jesus exposes them. He tells them he knows that they are seeking to kill him, and they deny it, but he's right. They are seeking to kill him, and then he exposes their motives. He says, "'You are of your father the devil.'" And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. See, all murder is inspired of Satan. Murder is a satanic act. Murder is always, without exception, profoundly evil. But here a great many of us misunderstand. We know that murder does happen, yet it does happen rarely. By far, the majority of people do not murder anyone, nor will they be murdered. I mean, even in the most violent places on earth, the majority of people are not murdered. You know, it's for that reason that many of us feel that the sixth command is, you know, it's one that we can easily keep. But let's stop for a moment. You know, Jesus spoke directly to this command, and it's recorded in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You know, there he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, why does Jesus say this? I mean, how can he possibly equate the act of anger and even name-calling in which we consign someone to the status of fool, how can that be equivalent in some sense to murder? I mean, anger may be one thing, but murder, actually carrying out the act of anger seems far more severe. I mean, common sense tells us that's so. And to be sure, Jesus was not arguing that earthly courts should make anger a part of their criminal justice system. And neither was he saying that anger is as bad as the act of physical murder. I mean, after all, you might be angry with someone and repent later and seek reconciliation. But when you, when you murder someone, I mean, you don't get reconciled. The damage can't be repaired. Okay, so how can anger, even hatred, be compared to murder? You know, in this matter, I, I'm led to something that John Kelvin once said. He said, see whether you can be angry against your brother without burning and desire to hurt him. Now, common experience in this matter tells us he's right in that. But let's go one step further. Do you remember the first murder? I mean, Cain kills his brother Abel. How did that happen? Well, it begins with jealousy, and then jealousy moves to anger. And then God confronts Cain, not at the moment of murder, but at the moment of anger. And in Genesis 4, verse 6, God says to Cain, why are you angry? And then in the next verse, God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's an interesting passage because, you know, some Old Testament scholars have pointed out that this idea of sin crouching at the door, well, that was an image that ancient peoples in the Middle East would have found quite familiar. That is because they understood that demons, evil gods would crouch and they would wait to overpower people but in Genesis, it's sin itself that is crouching. It's gonna jump on Cain, it's gonna overpower him. And the power of that sin lay in the contempt that Cain had for Abel. So God tells Cain he needs to master his own sin. It's it's at this level that God begins to deal with him. Master and defeat your anger, for anger can at any moment overpower you and cause you to do unspeakable things, even murder. See, anger, that is the, the murderous kind of anger treats with contempt that which is made in the image of God. It's a mind attitude. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day, well, they exemplified that. I mean, just think of their attitudes towards, well, Gentiles, Samaritans, and women. I mean, they were contemptuous of them. I mean, their very principle that undergirded the command against murder had already been rejected, and they had contempt for human life made in the image of God. So what can we say? I mean, we can say that keeping the outward command is not sufficient, for if you disrespect human life, if you you have contempt for others, you're already violating the spirit of the law. So let me quote Calvin one more time. He says, we are accordingly commanded if we find anything of use to us in saving our neighbor's lives, faithfully to employ it. If there's anything that makes for peace, to see to it. If anything harmful, to ward it off if they are in any danger to lend a helping hand. That is, Kelvin, and for that matter, many Bible teachers throughout history have thought that the sixth command tells us that we need to value human life by actively seeking to bless our neighbor. That is, we must never think of our neighbor as an inconvenience, as an obstacle to be overcome. We can murder someone in business if if we ride over them, leave them financially scorched. We murder someone in public opinion when it is in our power to destroy his or her reputation. But when we bless even our enemies, we prove ourselves to be the children of God. For Jesus himself prayed for his persecutors. But what else can we learn from this command? Well, let me now in the time remaining speak of two other applications to this command. I wanna speak briefly to the first matter. First, abortion, and then secondly, euthanasia. Both, as you know, involve the taking of human life. Let's start with the issue of abortion. Let's just speak about the morality of taking an unborn human life. But let's start also by acknowledging that in a great many cases, the woman who seeks to have an abortion will be at the point of distress. And so let me provide a number of reasons why someone might seek an abortion. She's 16 years old, and this would inalterably change her future. Or she's financially or emotionally unable to care for a child. Or she's in the beginning of her university career with a bright future, and this would have huge impact on future plans. Or, and this is a big one, she just discovered that the child within her has Down syndrome. And if, and if you don't know it, in our culture, over 90% of babies with Down syndrome are aborted. That's why when I was young, I remember playing with kids who had Down syndrome, but in, in today's world, you almost never see them. Now, there are no doubt many other reasons why a woman might choose to have an abortion. Some of those reasons are due to the pressures of a a boyfriend or family members. So how do we respond? I think we must respond by saying that each human life is made in God's image. It is valuable and is not disposable. If you want an even clearer perspective, hear the command of God. You shall not murder. You may not take human life. Now, when children are a burden, adoption, or the banding together of a family or a church community, All of this can lift the burden from a young woman's life. But every human being created in God's image must be treated as a human being, not a burden. And furthermore, abortionists are complicit in murder, for they are murderers for hire. And here, believers in Jesus must be careful. We cannot become murderers ourselves in our objection to the cruel practice of abortion. We don't bomb abortion clinics or make murderous threats. But now let's go to the other side of life, not the beginning of life, but the far end of life. You know, this comes about when suffering or chronic long-term pain or horrible diagnosis or a severely reduced quality of life, well, all of this can make living seem so much worse than dying. But even here, we may not take our own lives any more than we can take the life of another, for our lives are a gift from God. And I end this message by sharing my first impression of getting off an airplane and entering into the crowded streets of Hyderabad, India. I had never seen such a mass of humanity as I saw then, and I understood instinctively what people mean when they say there are just way too many of us. But then another thought came to my mind. Each one of these faces I saw were created in the image of God, were loved by God, had great worth each human being on those amazingly crowded streets. Crowds that just never seemed to come to an end. Each one had a soul. Each one was made with the capacity to know their creator. And suddenly I saw two conflicting viewpoints, both of which were alive in me. The one that they were image bearers of God and the other that they were just too many. So how to decide? The sixth command changes everything. Human lives are never disposable. Human lives are never just in our way. Human lives are valued by God. Human lives must be protected, for God has ordained that it should be so. We must cling to this word, you must not murder, and in that, see that in each human face is a face that bears the image of a God who loves them.
0: John, as you were talking, you know, a, a mutual friend of ours who was a pastor came to mind, and his son was was killed, uh, was murdered in a violent crime of which he really had no part in. And uh, this pastor uh, ended up meeting with the the son's killer and forgiving him.
1: Yeah. Uh, speak to that a bit, would you? Wow. Just... I mean, I know, uh, Ben. I, I think, if I recall right, I mean, I you know, I've known him for a number of years, you as well, but I think I remember him telling his story on one of our Back to the Bible broadcasts. And uh, he, he just, uh, this this kind of blows me away, this idea that, you know, somebody can be as vile as they are and take the life of your son. And yes, it's true. He was not involved in, in, in a crime or with a criminal gang. He just got caught into the, uh, you know, to, to stuff that was being done to others. And This forgiveness that we have in Christ is such an amazing thing because murder begets hatred, but Christ's compassion, thats something else.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. So call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call one 336 3315 That's one 336 3315 Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.